It's Tuesday, March 5th, 1963. Pilot Randy Hughes makes a stop-off in his Piper PA-24250 Comanche Light Aircraft at Dyersburg Municipal Airport, Dyersburg, Tennessee. Forced down by high winds and inclement weather, the Dyersburg airfield manager offers Hughes and his passengers free lodgings and food for the night if they would like to interrupt their journey from Kansas to Nashville and wait for the weather to improve. Hughes, however, is optimistic, having completed the lion's share of the trip already. I've already come this far. We'll be there before you know it. After only an hour's rest and despite having no training in instrument flight, Hughes, along with his passengers, Cowboy Copus, Hawkshaw Hawkins and 30-year-old singer Patsy Klein, leave Dyersburg for Nashville at 6.07pm. They will never reach their destination. Over 4,000 miles away, as one chapter ends in the history of popular music, another is just beginning. The Beatles, along with producer George Martin and sound engineer Norman Smith, use up some studio time that evening recording four takes of a repurposed Lennon McCartney original called The One After 909 to be set aside for some future release. They had spent the afternoon session recording the A and B side of their third single, From Me To You, coupled with Thank You Girl. After the smash hit success of their previous single, Please Please Me, George Martin had told them to go away and write something that isn't just as good, but better. Between the recording of their Please Please Me album and this session, the Beatles had not had a night off from live shows. There was no time set aside to write more hits. As a result, John and Paul huddled together on the tour bus, eyeball to eyeball, and tried to prove to themselves and the world that Please Please Me hadn't been a fluke. What they presented to George Martin that Tuesday afternoon were two songs that definitely weren't even better than Please Please Me. But one at least showed enough potential. If George applied all his producer's skills upon it, it might be hip material. As George himself stated in 1994, My specialties were beginnings, endings and solos. If they presented me with a song, I'd start thinking about how to arrange it so that it got off to a cracking start, had something interesting going on in the middle, and went out with a big bang. A pretty simple formula, really, but they relied on me to do it. As presented to George in Studio 2, From Me To You began with an intro phrase played on guitar by George Harrison. George Martin feeling this wasn't ear-catching enough, suggested a vocal and harmonica intro playing the same tune. It would also be a recognisable callback to the Beatles' previous two singles. The Beatles had not planned for this. John hadn't even brought his harmonica to the session. One had to be hastily borrowed from a technician. The Beatles recorded three takes, the third one being complete enough for John Lennon to declare that they couldn't improve upon it. But the song was only found to be 1 minute and 50 seconds long. Take 4 was played at a faster pace, shaving another 5 seconds off the running time. Clearly the song wasn't long enough for a single release. At this point, George Martin paused the recording and went down the stairs from the control room to the studio floor. His suggestion to lengthen the song and add dynamics was an instrumental section after the third verse. Based upon the intro with a call and response vocal line, from me to you, 
and then a return to the hook of the song. When the tape was restarted for take five, John was captured sounding confused about when the new part was to be played. By take seven, the backing track was completed. John was then required to add his harmonica part. He nailed the intro and instrumental section in one go, but missed his cue totally for the end of the song. As the tape stopped, a bewildered John asked, Was I meant to be playing then? In the afternoon, George Martin had taken a hastily written five-day-old tune and turned it into a pop production and the Beatles' first official nationwide number one record. The Beatles' words are very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. Good morning. Twenty-nine. Twenty-nine. Three, two, one. Can't operate under these conditions, boy. But you know, we're coming out. It's like, it's like that. We're like, we're striking. That's what it is. It's like a strike. And that's what we're going through now, really. Is that we've got to readjust to each other. You know, I've gone over so many songs. But I've got, like, my quantum of tunes for the next ten years or albums. I won't lie, I'm not too good. <laughs> the winter of discontent with the Beatles. Hello, and welcome to Winter of Discontent, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back Project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Episode 26 I must give credit to the podcast producing the Beatles for the details of the From Me To You session that we used in our pre-credit sequence. Welcome back to episode 26 and the second part of our two-parter looking at the arrangement of Don't Let Me Down. From this episode onward, everything we discuss will have the benefit of access to Peter Jackson's astonishing Get Back documentary. Already some of the abiding myths about these sessions have been disproved conclusively. A number of never-before-seen instruments are captured in the footage. So before we start, let's look at what we have discovered. Because I want this series to be a chronological documentary of the time, I don't want to make a separate episode about my take on Peter Jackson's edit of the Get Back footage. I have, however, taken part in two episodes of the When They Was Fab podcast. Those discussions are very much first impressions, as we started the conversation minutes after I'd finished the final part. Rewatching the footage, it becomes more obvious that a lot of the audio that was needed for the story didn't have corresponding visuals, so a fair amount of reconstruction has been done on the Twickenham section. If you follow this podcast, you may also have noticed conversations flown in from different days and compiled as if they were in one conversation. I'm sure this is done to help the narrative, and so far, I don't think this misrepresents any events that have happened. But even at eight hours, Get Back can't tell the whole story. Fortunately, I've decided to make that my job. One of the most surprising things revealed in the new documentary 
is the appearance of musical equipment we haven't seen before. Or at least, I haven't. Here is a brief rundown of that equipment. Firstly, footage of the 6th of Jan, the same day we're looking at here, shows us very clearly what the guitar was that George referred to as the brown one. We know on Friday George tried different guitars for All Things Must Pass. Perhaps he intended to use this for another rehearsal of that song. It's a large-bodied, single-cutaway jazz-style guitar with three pickups. It appears to be the 1956 Gibson ES5 Switchmaster that George used on the sessions for Jackie Lomax's album last year. George plays a bluesy part on it, then briefly plugs it in, but it would appear he soon switches back to Lucy the Les Paul. Also on the 6th of Jan, John is captured plugged into a couple of different amplifiers. I've managed to find audio of John switching amps before lunch, but there are two different ones pictured in the footage. Firstly, a cream-coloured amp head and speaker, which is a 1965 blonde Fender Bassman amp that had been used in the studio since the Rubber Soul sessions, mainly for bass but also for guitar. John is also seen on this day plugged into an Ampeg B15 head and speaker. This is mainly used as a bass amp, but one commentator has speculated that it could have been used to amplify the Lowry organ and John borrowed it to change his guitar sound also. It's pure speculation on my part, but since the Blonde Bassman amp was used by George later in 1969 on his tour with Delaney and Bonnie, it may be that the Ampeg is the one that's making the unpleasant distorted noise that John is unhappy with. On January 8th, George is seen with an unusual looking acoustic guitar. It's a normal dreadnought acoustic shape, but the headstock is the shape of a Fender Stratocaster with six tuning pegs on one side. This is the Fender Wildwood Acoustic. This is believed to be part of the package of instruments supplied by Fender for this project. This includes the guitar and bass amplifiers, Fender Rhodes keyboards and George's Rosewood Telecaster and the PA system. It doesn't appear to be used again after this date, however. Another oddity captured in the footage at Apple Studios is a hollow-bodied bass seen leaning against the chair behind Paul. This looks very much like an Epiphone Rivoli bass in Sunburst. It's basically the bass version of the Epiphone Casino that Paul, John and George are using. I can't find much information on this bass. It is right-handed, but its symmetrical body means it could be played upside down. But I can't see if it's strung that way. Maybe when we get to the Savile Row sessions, we'll find out more. By far the most astonishing bass captured in the documentary, however, is Paul's 1961 refinished Hofner bass. The same bass that many commentators, including me, believed to have been stolen from Twickenham Studios sometime after the 3rd of January. It's clear now that Paul switched to the 1963 model because he preferred it and the bass remained in his possession when they moved to Apple Studios. So where it was stolen from is unclear. It is possible that one of Apple's notoriously light-fingered staff may have taken it. Maybe we'll learn more by studying these tapes. I have another podcast recommendation. Discord and Rhyme, billed as an album podcast. It's intelligent, irreverent and very funny. And it covers a lot of great music and some quite bad music too. It's never less than entertaining.
We've been working through these tapes for just over a year now, and I think we've discovered a lot of things that haven't been discussed before about the Get Back project. By splitting the lengthy section of today's rehearsals devoted to Don't Let Me Down into two, I hope I can convey how gruelling this part of the day was without making it equally gruelling for the listener. This is all leading to an eventual confrontation between George and Paul when they start working on the next song, Two of Us. But first, let's recap where we are so far. After some post-lunch jamming and running through golden oldies, the Beatles settled into some serious work arranging John's Don't Let Me Down. We missed the start of the performance, so it's not known how many times they've run through the song when we join them. Paul has taken on the role of arranger. John merely runs through multiple performances of the middle section of Don't Let Me Down, but offers few suggestions himself for an arrangement. Here we begin to understand that Paul is taking on too much, with little support from his bandmates. He has recruited the director, producer and sound engineer, developed the concept, chosen the location, encouraged John, George and Ringo to take part, written a number of songs and is now leading the efforts to knock John's songs into shape, the role previously taken by George Martin. It's left to Paul, and to a lesser extent George, to work out what instrumentation should accompany John singing. John sings well on these early rehearsals, and plays a guitar solo at the end of this rendition. John asks for Mal to change his amp, but Mal isn't there, so John perseveres with the bad-sounding amp. John identifies the weak point in the song is its middle section. Paul offers the idea of a call-and-response vocal for this section. Both George and Paul vocalise a response as John sings the melody, but they sing different tunes. John concentrates on the rhythm, likening the song to the Drifters vocal group and suggesting a Latin beat. Paul hits on the idea of playing a descending scale in the middle section, an idea he'll return to. George and Paul try this idea while singing the counter melody for the middle section. Paul asks John if he likes George's idea of two different counter melodies. John is unsure. He is concerned that the harmonies won't sound balanced if they're on different mics. John sides with Paul that he can sing corny lyrics in response to John's vocal. George agrees but doesn't think the counter melody should also be corny. As the vocals aren't coming out of the PA, John can't hear so he isn't offering an opinion. Yoko offers some lyrical ideas about love being scary. John and Paul run with this idea for a while. At the start of another run-through, John suggests that the song needs an intro. This is a full run-through, but they don't have a full ending yet. John wonders if the song needs piano, but he's advised against it as they'd lose a guitar. He asks George to play some riffs in the verses. George comments that the wah-wah helps. John isn't so keen. Paul begins vocalising drum parts for Ringo to try. He duly obliges. They all agree the middle section should be different from the rest of the song, but don't know how they should do it. George suggests making it heavier in the middle. John states that the choruses are already heavy enough. Paul now focused on the drum pattern for the verses, finally hits upon the drum part used in the finished recording. Ringo plays it impeccably. 
Now let's join the Beatles for part two of this rehearsal for Don't Let Me Down. Need something just to hold it all together, like an organ almost. Yes. But that you could do it on it. Nobody ever loved me like she. It has to be all. Each one has to be as loud as the other. You know, like. Another run through of the middle eight. suggests Ringo's drum part for this section. Feedback from the PA, Paul vocalises into it. suggests only singing the backing vocals on the first and third line. John completely on board with Paul's drumming ideas. See, George, that's uh, that that sing, doing each single note there is like is uh, makes that you know. And nobody ever loved me like she did. Start going. Fill in unnecessary. 
Now Paul proposes that George play a continuous lead line through the verse. He duly obliges. He also suggests that his bass line should be simple. Strange that Paul doesn't have the words. We know that John dictated them to Mal on the second. Once again, they add an extra beat to the pickup on the second verse. Unless we do it on voices or that, you're having to do all the things we do on overdubs. You know, it's a bit like that because it's all like okay, as long as, uh, as, long as they're easy. It's like, I'm in love for the. Have something doing that, I'm sure. That's actually John playing that double stopped guitar part there. Now Paul wonders if George should play the vocal part in the middle section rather than try to sing it. He feels it should be one or the other. To an extent, he's lamenting that they can't overdub it in the studio. George runs through the idea on his own, backed by John and Paul. As John's voice tires, he sings in various comical ways, including a falsetto. some point they're going to need to focus on the guitar part. This does put George on the spot.
Interestingly, Paul refers to these double-stopped guitar lines, i.e. two strings played in harmony, as the Chuck Berry. It actually sounds like John wants George to play in that Chuck Berry style the same way that he did. But the problem now is, how does he sing at the same time? Even when George is tuning, he's still using the wah-wah effect. John runs through the middle in 6-8 time making it sound like a Fats Domino song. I'm not sure if this is a serious suggestion, since he continues it into the chorus in the same rhythm. Then he offers to move on to another song. Paul wants to persevere with Don't Let Me Down. George asks what the date is, but then he wonders when the concert will be. Paul tells him they have 12 days to get ready. Um, what's the date today, by the way? Do you know? Today is 6th. Today is 6th, I think so. Yeah. yeah. And what day is the 12 days off? What is off? Because 12 days off is when we do it. John, in response, jokingly plays Don't Let Me Down at double speed, joined by Ringo. No, we've only, we haven't done many yet. We've only run through about four. Yeah. Really no, no. George, becoming aware of how much work there is to do. George sings a line that could be improvised. We're not really making it. Strangely faced with this deadline, Paul, John and Ringo begin jamming before George interrupts to ask if there's any more tea. Paul counts in, but nobody joins in. Okay. One, two, three, four, one. Don't let me 
They start the song again from the top, but a little fast. That pickup is still not quite right. George complains it's too fast. John agrees. George says that speed makes the middle section sound ridiculous. Paul also agrees through yawns. That sounds like Ringo setting the tempo by drumming his sticks on his thighs. John now asking George and Paul to demonstrate what they'll be singing in the choruses. engineer must have seen the tape running out and sped it up to run out the spool and it's giving us this extraordinary effect we presume this is the same performance once again John fluffs the third verse It's better slower, isn't it? Yeah. Still, I'm in love for the first time. Yeah. John identifying that the middle section is still weak. See, because I mean, I mean, it's it's one of them old bits. You know, it's gonna last. Then what would they do with those? He says it's like an old style of tune, so he wonders how they would have played it in the past. Yoko offers an opinion, but it's inaudible. Yeah, I thought that would have been a real art place. Yeah. I'm in love for... Paul suggests backing vocals going ah, which is quite lovely.
George ponders how realistic it is to get musicians to augment them. George actually having the idea of a bass and guitar unison line playing under the vocal instead. Paul plays along but doesn't take it seriously. But this is the solution that they're looking for. They just don't know it yet. Tape cuts. An alternate version of the R's harmonies. Tape cuts in and out. Okay, so look, definitely, let's do what I said in the first place. Yes. Really, just repeat what you're doing. Yes. I think that's the best. That would be the best. Just something that but not as high as we're doing. Paul getting a little impatient now. Just do what I said in the first place. But want of a better idea. Tape cuts. Paul encourages John to do one of his Chuck Berry inspired solos. Tape cuts again. A little conflicting idea for backing vocals. George copies John's. I know it's going to last. Paul sings, I'll never let it get away. They pause and Paul tells George to sing his line. George responds, why? Tape cuts again. Yeah, I know, but see, like you said, it was corny before. And so to change the corniness, I was changing the words. Well, yeah, but the, the corny behind it was the, the notes that it was doing, yeah. you know, and the way so, it was doing it, not really what it was saying. Okay. I mean, if it's, see, if it's good, it, it doesn't matter. You can get, I think you can get really good by singing the corny notes and having new words. And, you know, so I'm, but it's like, you know, we still have to try it. Yeah, I know, but we haven't. We still haven't done this. 
glove for the first time in my life? Don't you know it's gonna last? I'll never let it get away. So love that lasts forever. Forever and a day. Yeah, but there's some new words then. George sticking to his guns. Just copy what John sings. Paul's not backing down, but he's also getting frustrated. And I just have a guitar. John wants to hear the backing vocals repeating his lines, but Paul continues making up his own lyrics. George corrects him. I'm just trying to get a bit, we'll try, you know, and sort of go right through and keep talking about it. Okay, we'll just repeat exactly what you say. Finally, they try George's idea. Okay, that's that's all right. That's yes, I can't hear you. No. I like John's use of the word supplant in this context. Yeah, see, but in a way, that's even cornier, I think. That that little harmony bit, it's just too pretty. It's if there's one hole in it, it's not that. George offers an opinion. He thinks it's awful. John and Paul want to know if he's got a better suggestion. George prefers a moving harmony, but Paul thinks that this is what sounds corny. George offers a subtle change. One line staying static while the other moves down the scale. This doesn't work either. Last forever. It's a love that has no past. It's a love that has no past. Oh, see that. John suggests just doing a placeholder vocal for now and they can improve it later. This line from the Let It Be movie was cut onto the first run through of Maxwell's Silverhammer. But it's obvious here that Paul is referring to this backing vocal and not his own composition. Very dishonest of Mr. Lindsay Hogg. Uh, let's just sing, you know, the corny one. Yeah, do just the to get this one. bit, you know, and then we can like, because you see, that's it. That's what, you know, we we make it better as it yeah, goes I on. Mean, but if I we don't, if it doesn't go on, you know, we've just gone around like for an hour with nothing in our heads, just. And we're back, you know, so let's... Yeah, no, but let's sort of move on now. 
So let's just get. I'd like to hear this. any of them. Yeah. Right. Once. Right. Okay. So we repeat exactly what he says, but we can't on one of the lines. Yeah. But uh, so see, I'm in love for the first time in my life. You can definitely feel that the discussion of her deadline has changed the mood of this rehearsal. Paul is complaining about wasted time. George makes a criticism of Paul here that he ignores. See, that's why you don't get any further, because you just keep, you sing the one, then he gets the one that doesn't work. That's what I hear. But the gist of it is that there is a problem with what lyrics to sing in this section that never gets resolved. They just keep trying it over and over. Okay, so how about, how about changing around these two? And when you sing, don't you know it's going to last, we sing, it's a love that has no past. Then it sings, and then we repeat, it's a love that has no, uh, lasts forever, exactly. And then when you sing, it's a love that has no past, we sing, it's a love that's going to last. Yes. So, okay, so I'm in love for the love for the first time in my life. It's a love that has no past. We swap that one for the other, so that when he's singing that, we're singing the other. Then it's a love that lasts forever. Repeat that, even though it sounds funny, it'll be alright. And then, don't you know it's gonna? Let's just try it through roughly. That sounds like George is commenting on the crackling noise of John's dying amplifier. He says. What's that? And Paul replies, it's his amp. Paul's idea is to swap the words around for the backing vocals. This confuses George. It's interesting that what drives a lot of these decisions are matters of good taste. Just try it all exactly as it is, repeat it. But just on the last time, sing, repeat, it's a love that's going to last, and you say past. Okay. I don't know, it's, it's like it's verged between ridiculous and all right. You know, sing differently. It is like, what's the bonzo? What do they say? She's, she's in pain. Second mention today of the Bonzo Dog Band, referring to the song Canyons of Your Mind where they have similar answering backing vocals. Fifth Stanshaw sings, Oh my, how it hurts. And Neil Innes replies, He's in pain. Getting a little closer to that signature riff, so there is some progress. George has hit upon a hook for the song. 
It's fascinating that the most enduring thing to come from this rehearsal, being George's signature guitar riff, has been arrived at by stopping doing the thing that they've been rehearsing all afternoon. Yeah, right, but... No, really, you'd yeah, slow it down, right? Okay. You know, it's either the... I know, you know. Yeah, I know, but you... See, I think that... George putting it quite bluntly to Paul that if he could hear his idea back on tape, he'd reject it. And it sounds like Glyn finds that funny. Give it, right, I give it. No, you see, the first one is... We found out that that's the weak bit, right? So we tried putting voices on it. But it's still down to the rhythm somehow. The beat. Love for the first. But it was always weak on your guitar. Yeah, that's that's sure. a weak bit of the song, that. Paul reluctantly backs down, but his stubbornness on this one point has wasted a lot of time. Johnny's conciliatory pointing out the positives, like how they've sorted out all the drum parts. We now get an insight into the origins of that middle section. It appears to be inspired by Sam Cooke's Send Me Some Lovin', released in 1963. In those things. You know, if you listen to the uh, things, does. all that's going on is the bass, guitar, and the drums doing, doing. What, go on. Yeah, okay. Uh, Oh, for the first time. Glenn offers his first contribution, at least on tape, as a producer. He suggests they do the backing vocals, one doing the first line, two singing the second and three singing the third line. This seems to be interpreted as George returning to play the backing vocal part on guitar and Paul attempting to harmonise with John. Fine, that may be Glyn, but it sounds a bit like George Martin saying, How does that grab you? Yeah, it's like a uh, little help to my friends. Tape cuts. This is roll 43, slate 88. A camera.
George's riff has now become the intro to the song, but he's using the wah-wah still. If somebody ever loved me like she do. Still singing the pickups in different meters from each other. In the second chorus, George realises the riff works at the end of each alternate line. In the middle, Ringo has changed his drum part. George plays the backing vocal line on his guitar as discussed. John fluffs the third verse again. George checking that riff is okay with John. Slate 89 sync. So they've adopted the idea of harmonising every other line in the middle section. Another run through is much more closely resembling the finished version now. George arriving at the guitar part for the verses now. The lengthy rehearsals have benefited George the most. John reverts to the idea of his Chuck Berry style solo at the end. Here we have a really good example of how George in his guitar playing adds colour to the arrangement of the song. Um, so while John is playing fairly straightforward chords here as an F sharp minor and an E major, what George is doing at the ninth fret is playing inversions of those chords. So he's playing this for the F sharp minor and he's barring the ninth fret for the E. In the chorus when it's repeating the don't let me down phrase, he moves from that F sharp minor and then adds an F sharp minor seventh for extra sort of colour to the E. The riff that he's arrived at is in that same position on the ninth fret. Uh, and that's basically notes from the E major scale. Issues starting from the second. That's how he's arrived at that. So 
in that position, he's got those extra strings underneath that you can hit to make it sound a bit thicker. And that becomes the signature riff of the tune. In the verses, George is playing something a little bit more tricky, especially for me on this guitar that's quite small. He's still playing the inversions of the F sharp minor and the E, the same as he was before. But because Paul wanted a, a flowing kind of line, he's extended his little finger out to the 14th fret on the first string. And he plays this descending run like this. And he ends it on that E major 7th which adds colour to John's E major chord and then resolves it by playing like that on the E. That's the end of today's work on Don't Let Me Down. Despite creating a lot of tension, particularly between George and Paul, a lot has been achieved. Drum and guitar parts are now firmly established. The arrangement of the song is pretty much fixed now, but on the downside it showed a negative side to Paul's way of working. He'll pursue an idea relentlessly, even when it's not working. There's a power vacuum being created by John now, not offering any ideas of his own. Which leads to George and Paul having open disagreements over what to do. It's interesting that it actually takes a producer, Glyn, to resolve the conflict. It's the guidance that they're sorely lacking elsewhere during these rehearsals. That said, you can't help but feel a sense of triumph that they've worked so hard and managed to take something as simple as this three chord song and turn it into something quite wonderful and that's it thanks for listening let me know what you think on our facebook page and our instagram all titled winter of discontent pod please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review it really helps other people find us you can also email on winter of discontent pod at gmail.com Thanks again and goodbye for now.